This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are lucky enough to have with us Donald McPherson, who is the executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, to talk about the way that we handle substances in this country. We have seen cannabis legalized going back to 2018. Well, what happens if we look to other substances? What could it mean if we legalized more than just cannabis and, let's face it, alcohol, caffeine? Those are also legal. Well, let's find out. Donald, thanks so much for being here. How's your day going? Uh, My day is going okay, Mike. Good to be here. We talked yesterday about a poll that was done by Research Co. that asked Canadians, hey, what would you think of legalizing powdered cocaine or crack cocaine or heroin? And the numbers in favor of doing that were very, very small, 15%, 14%. One was 16%. That was about as high as it got. But that's just basically blindly walking up to somebody and saying, hey, what do you think about this? And having them make a decision. When we talk about legalizing substances that are illicit drugs right now, are illegal drugs right now, what do we have to consider? Well, uh, those numbers actually are higher than I would have thought. Um, After 120 years of doing something one way, uh, enforcing drug prohibition, um, people, these, these substances are highly stigmatized. Um, they are, uh, we've, we've been conditioned to, to look at sort of good drugs, bad drugs. And when in fact drugs are just drugs and they're on a spectrum of, uh, of, uh, utility and harms and, uh, alcohol, one and tobacco, two of the most harmful substances, we are quite fine with living with the harms associated with those substances, um, because they're culturally familiar to us. Um, so we really, we really, and we also have to understand that by not regulating substances like cocaine and heroin, uh, methamphetamine, we are handing the regulatory control to them to transnational organized criminal organizations, which produce, uh, export, import, uh, distribute and uh, have retail sellers uh, in the streets of Canadian uh, towns and cities selling these substances. So we've abdicated control over a market of substances that uh, creates a situation where we have maximized the harm of those substances. They're toxic, they're doses of unknown strength that are being sold, and uh, we 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 time to change the way we we uh, look at this uh, whole situation donald mcpherson joining us executive director of the canadian drug policy coalition and this is a fascinating discussion and you you raise some really good points where we we don't know what is in some of the substance that are being circulated i mean you look at the fentanyl issues that we have had and you look at the conversations that you want to have with teenagers saying hey you don't know where the stuff that you're going after is going to be if that's what you choose to do you got to be so careful you have no idea and it's true we we have no regulation but to hear well then we should just legalize it that would help improve things how would that help improve things 
Well, I think uh, legalize is a bit of a sensational word. We we uh, uh, choose words like regulate and control. So we regulate and control most substances, including the legal ones like alcohol and the tobacco and uh, caffeine um, and pharmaceutical products. Uh, it's something that we are very familiar with. And for historic reasons, we have chosen not to regulate a small group of drugs that are in high demand around the world. The stimulants uh, and the uh, you know, opium, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, the psychedelics, which are now coming into uh, more of a medical use, uh, therapeutic use. Uh, so we regulate a lot of things, uh, Mike. It's, it's something we do, and we've just chosen not to do with these substances. So I think if we were to bring them into a regulatory framework, we would the uh, one improve uh, consumer safety for people who are using them. They would not be uh, dropping dead because fentanyl was painting their heroin or cocaine. Uh, and we would we would be able to instead of trying to enforce prohibition, which has been a catastrophic failure, we could put our focus on uh, helping people who develop dependencies and addictions to these substances. Most people won't. Uh, most people don't become severely addicted to alcohol, even though 85% of Canadians use it. Um, most people won't become severely addicted to these substances, but some will, and that's where we need to put our energies. Donald, you're in BC, we're in Ontario, and both places have safe injection sites. And that's something that has been different. It was something that took a, a long time to reach. Do we see that kind of a move as perhaps identifying there could be a change in the way that things are viewed? I think the introduction of supervised consumption sites uh, and uh, the emerging discussion around providing an alternative, uh, pharmaceutical alternative to the toxic drug market, uh, commonly called safer supply or safe supply, uh, in the context of the overdose crisis, which is really a drug toxicity crisis, um, I think we're beginning to crawl out from underneath the rock of 100 years of drug prohibition to understand that there are ways we should be implementing uh, more consumer safety protocols so that people don't, you don't have to die because you use one of these substances. And right now, this is the most toxic situation we've ever seen in the history of our uh, country. Um, thousands of people are, are dying because of uh, tainted tainted drugs. And uh, that does not have to happen. If people had access to a regulated supply and learned how to use these substances as we learn how to use alcohol and other substances that are legal, uh, cannabis as well now, um, all of the same logic for regulating cannabis applies to all of the other drugs. Keep keep money away from organized criminals, protect young people, and uh, allow consumers to have a product that is uh, of known consistency and strength. Donald McPherson joining us, Executive Director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Donald, when you bring these topics up, again, we're still dealing, like you say, with some antiquated ways of, you know, in... in 
a way to, to prohibit somebody from doing it. it it's kind of like that attitude that existed generations ago where, well, if we don't talk about it, it's not there. Or if we just don't let people do it, then it, then it won't happen. When we have to face a, a little more realistic view of how things actually work, when you talk about things like this, what kind of a reaction do you find you're getting? I think when when you when you actually sort of dig down and have a discussion about the notion that well if we if we don't choose to regulate these substances, uh, organized crime does reg- regulate these substances and they don't do a very good job. They don't really care about public health or uh, uh, what happens to their customers. Um, and and when you look at the research that has been done about the relative harms of substances, you find that. Uh, heroin, yes, has great potential harms. Alcohol is right up there, too, with great potential harms. Other substances like cannabis, which we brought into a regulatory regime, the sky didn't fall when Canada legalized and regulated cannabis. Um, psychedelics are now being seen as a, a therapeutic benefit and will probably be much more available through a therapeutic uh, regulatory system in the coming uh, coming months and years. Um, and since there's a demand for stimulants and opioids, uh, we need to figure out how best to uh, meet that demand in, in the safest possible way. Right now, we have, it, it's, a, it's the most unsafe way that people are uh, uh, navigating this drug market. Yeah, because that demand, that's not going away. We, we, you know, if time's taught us anything, hopefully it's taught us that. That demand is not going away, right? That's a very important point. You know, for whatever reason, people use substances for a perceived benefit that they feel they will get from them. It's either pleasure or, or it's to sleep better or it's to deal with trauma uh, uh, and abuse and uh, chronic pain. Uh, a whole bunch of different reasons people use substances. And if anything, demand will increase. The, the more, uh, unless we really put our, put our minds to how to improve community health and well-being with all sorts of, you know, social programs, uh, uh, the child, early child care learning, um, and, and help people navigate this very complex world better, you will see more demand for uh, people using substances, and we have to be very, very cognizant of the of the of the harms and how to minimize the harms of those substances. Donald McPherson joining us, executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Donald, as we close out, just one more thing, and that is, if we are going to see change in regulation, is it the government who initiates this, or who else might we look to that could have an impact in that way? I think the, the, the Canadian Public Health Association, uh, the Health Officers Council of British Columbia are two organizations that have put a lot of thought into this and uh, building a, a public health-oriented regulatory framework for these few other substances that are outside of our regulatory regimes right now, I think would be something that uh, the gov- government should be involved in. Uh, they should be uh, uh, concerned about the health and well-being of uh, people who do use drugs, and trying to uh, minimize those harms as much as possible. So yes, I would I would hope the federal government would take this uh, take this seriously, uh, be one of the 
leaders in the world to say the, the, the system is broken, prohibition has proven to be a catastrophic failure, and we're going to explore new options to better regulate these substances and get them into the hands of organized criminals. Donald, thanks so much for your time today. Okay. Take care. Take care. That's Donald McPherson, Executive Director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. So there's a topic of conversation for the weekend or for the dinner table that deals nothing with COVID-19. This deals with something that we have had in our midst going back to, what, when humans first found that if you chewed on this leaf, you kind of got a high? Right now, let's get some information about mortgages and where things could go when, not if, but when we start to see interest rates rise and some of the things that we are seeing in the market. Joining us right now is the mortgage teacher. You can find him at mortgageteacher.com, Michael Mullis. Michael, how are things? Excellent. How are you doing? Can't complain. You know, we're we're making it through. We're we're going to see what comes out the other side of this. I hope in short order. I don't know how short that order is going to be, but we've you know we've got a pandemic going on. If we didn't have a pandemic, I wonder how high up the list the story of housing prices and real estate would rank. Things have been wild. Have you ever seen things going as they have been? I don't even know what kind of a timeline to put on it, but you know, over the last year, two years, I don't know how far back to go. Yeah, I, I hear you. I've been doing it for twenty years here in the city. Uh, so to see anything like this in the London and surrounding area, and even all of Ontario, uh, absolutely not. I have not seen anything like this. Uh, I can relate and and kind of give us some numbers on why it's so busy because. You're relating a little bit to the purchasing market. No offense, but even when we think mortgages, we often think of buying and selling a house with mortgages. Sure. Right, because the real estate market is the hottest. But let's look back in history a little bit where in 2015 and 16, that's when the five-year fix, so so so-called the lowest rates ever in Canada, was in 2015 and 16. You can Google, you know, the five-year bond yield. Bank of Canada bond yield, to look at the chart for the five-year fix, and you can see it go down in those years. And then, of course, when Trump came in November 2016, you start to see the rates go up, up, up all the way. And some of our listeners might have taken a mortgage in 2018, and the rates were as high as, you know, 3.9%. So we've had these ups and downs. Now, here's the thing that's remarkable. Back then, when rates were all-time low, if you took a mortgage in 2015, which, you know, there's Stats out there that say over 75% of Canadians took a mortgage in 2015 and 16 because the rates were so low, they were breaking it kind of like today. Well, lo and behold, if you took a mortgage five years ago, you're up for renewal now. Hello, look where the rates are for you again. Yes, some of us are a little spoiled. But <laughs> here, I have to be honest because I've mentioned on the show or my show before, I'm from Dorchester, surrounding area, but small town roots a little bit. Okay, so I was raised by my parents, my grandparents, Mike, you and I have talked about this, pay down your mortgage, pay down your mortgage, look for the lowest rate, take advantage, pay down your mortgage. But here's where we have to start calling people out. And and here's what I mean, that that advice was given to us when rates were at 8%, 7%, 6%, 5%, and the 2000s came, we saw four, we saw three, we saw two, now we see one. Okay, folks, 
when are we, we, we chase the lowest rate. We have it. It's here. It's now. But when are we going to use it? That's the problem that I'm seeing. And that's the biggest alarm bell, believe it or not, that we're not hearing about that I want to see people borrowing money take advantage of. So instead of just getting a mortgage and letting a payment spit out because the graph is really low, what are you expecting to pay? What should you pay? I mean, we have a stress test here in Canada, which I know you're probably going to bring up. And that's what's changing on June 1st. So if the Canadian government is holding us to every single Canadian has to qualify at 4.79%. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you get 3%, 2%, 1%. You have to qualify at 4.79%. And so you've got to changing. be able to pay, right? That's, that's what that stress test does. They're going to look at your situation, and you would have to be able to pay for whatever mortgage you would apply for at 4.79%. No, good, good no. way to look at it, but that's not what you have to pay, but you have to qualify. So a quick little example, say, you know, say uh, your household makes $100,000 a year and we so-called pre-approve you or somebody pre-approves you for a mortgage, anyone in Canada, any institution, this is just rule across the board. So say you're pre-approved, let me go back in time, Mike, and I'll help explain a little better so we can relate. Wait, let's go back to 2015 because this so-called stress test Remember that in the news years ago, right? I think that so, but kick- but refresh our memories. For sure. So it kicked in in January 1st, 2016. And it's part of what we call the B-20 Act. Back when we saw this, the United States uh, kind of plummet with their 2008 housing market, Canada started implementing all kinds of new qualifying rules. Um, you know, I, there's many I could name, but the one that hit us January 1st, 2016 was this new stress test. Okay? So what it means is, it's, say, October 2015, I have a young couple pre-approved to go house shopping. Say they're going to get a rate of 3.59. That's what they were at the time, we'll say. And they're, you know, they're looking for a house for $400,000. Everything's fine. The stress test kicks in because their income would have been held against 3.59. We all know that. That's how we get a mortgage. Whatever rate I get is how much I can afford. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. But starting January 1st, 2016, now that same couple, same income, they didn't get a raise, their income has to get stressed against 4.79%, 5%, not the 3.5% that they were actually getting. So their payment might actually only be 2000 a month, but their income has to qualify higher at the 479 so automatically they can't go buy for 400 they can only buy for 320,000 that's where it made it way harder for us to buy a house against our income and then now and with the inflation of house prices it's even harder to get into a house that's just it so what is happening then June 1st yes what will happen is right now the same thing that happened to these people and to all of us not these people but all of us in 2000 and that, that example in 2016. So right now, say I run your numbers today, okay? Then you're pre-approved. It works out to 400,000. On June 1st, that will only be about 350,000 because now you have to qualify against 5.25%. So you qualify for less because the rate went up against you. Meanwhile, the interest rate might be lower. doesn't matter where the rates are. It matters how you qualify. So unbelievable amount of people are buying houses with co-signers nowadays just to qualify 
We are talking with Michael Mullis from The Mortgage Teacher, and we're looking at some of the things that sound like they're going to make it more challenging even for people to get into a home because if you're saying hey you know you've you've got to have this to qualify and what if you can only qualify for 325,000 or 300,000 it it's tough to find a house for that isn't it uh, absolutely like i'm i'm i've mentioned on here i don't have to hide it i'm about 44 years old or so and the point i'm saying that is cuz when i grew up in more of the 90s and the 2000s that way. I remember sentences like, how much can you afford to buy? Well, it's four times your income. Do you remember that old line just to kind of generate how much you should be able to buy for? It used to be your income. So say you make 50 grand a year. And, you know, that just basic kind of numbers, ballparking, of course, you could go buy a house for about $200,000. Mm-hmm. Well, that made sense because, you know, as a single guy, you could go buy a house for 160 or a small apartment to build, Right. Then later in the 2000s, when the rates came down, it was more like your income times five. So it's like, well, okay, if you make 50 grand a year, maybe I can afford $250,000 because the rates came down in the 2000s. That's when we started to see the, the fives and the fours, okay? Nowadays, what's going on, if you take that same theory, because it's still the same as far as the rates. In fact, we've got a stress test. So it's your income times five. So say you make you know, $100,000 a year, you can only buy for about four or five hundred thousand. Well, do the quick math. If you're making a hundred thousand a year, that's a pretty good job, for one. And you can only buy for four or five hundred thousand. That's getting difficult to find in London now. So it's difficult to predict. But could this finally slow things down? Yeah, we're, we're hoping so. Clearly, that's what they're trying to do with this implement like implementing this new rule. Now, here's the concern I have right away. That's going to cause a mad rush like it always does. So unfortunately, we're going to see hyperinflation in this area because people are going to overpay because before it's, you know, before it gets harder to qualify. So for a while, when they implement a rule, you usually see a lot of people like, oh, well, you better hurry. You better hurry. Um, for example, people's advertisements at, at institutions are going to be, rates are going up, qualify today. So it pushes some urgency, which along, look at the timing. you got a spring market. We're all starting to tidy up our homes so we can get them up on the market for sale. So inventory is going to go up, but so is the demand. And here's the one that's kind of shocking me. Where are the people coming from? Because I do mortgages all over Canada, all over Ontario. And down in London, all we are told by everyone is, you know, they're coming down the 401 and they're just, you know, they, they're used to paying for more so they can get more for less down here. Do you agree, Mike? Is that what you're told? That's kind of what it seems like and has seemed like for a while. I I agree, but then why are my Toronto clients putting multiple offers in places right downtown Toronto? You know, they're going up for, uh, to, to be blunt, uh, a good friend of mine just sold their place. They listed it for decent. They didn't try to come in really low and do the multiple offers. They listed it you know, decent, and lo and behold, it sold for 300000 more than asking. So if this is still happening downtown Toronto, because I thought living down here that people were leaving the downtown area and, you know, because they can work from home and they're coming down the 401 to work in different areas, but Toronto is still exploding too. So until we see Toronto slow down, then we will see Kitchener and Hamilton slow down, where my office is up in that area, there's still multiple offers. So we're hoping with inventory going up, with it harder to qualify coming down, 
I don't know if we're going to see a slowdown, especially in the London area, this year. Interesting. Yeah, Kitchener has to slow down before London slows down. We're usually a year later. We've always been steady Eddie, is what we've been (laughs) (laughs) Michael, it is always fascinating hearing from you. Thank you for this info. So in closing, is there anything that if somebody is right now looking at buying or looking at re-upping their mortgage or, or whatever it is, any quick tip to close out on what they should do, given what you've told us? Yeah, the quick tip is don't do it quick. Take your t- It's more like a financial planning strategy more than ever. You really got to sit down and pre-plan ahead. And it's not just getting a rate and getting a payment. You really got to look at your next five years. And while rates are here, guys, I want to run into everyone in five years from now and look back and say, at least while the rates were low, we paid off a lot of our debt. That's the tackle you want to see in the next five years. You don't want to look back and say, oh, rates were so cheap back then. I enjoyed that payment. Now I'm stressed because I owe a lot more and my rates are going up. So it doesn't matter when they're going up. If it's this year, next year, do not, we don't have a crystal ball. But the time is now. While they're low, take advantage and pay your stuff off. That's the quickest advice. Month by month like the rest of us. Michael, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time today. Keep safe. You too, Mike. Take care. Michael Mullis from The Mortgage Teacher. You can find mortgageteacher.com online. So another change in that stress test coming in in June, and we'll see how long it takes for the trickle effect, if it even happens, to affect this market. Let's right now find out how we might be able to turn CO2 into O2. Plants do it like that. No problem. They've been doing it probably, I don't know, for millions of years. Joining us right now from Western University is Dr. Oz, Dr. Gordon Nazinski. Dr. Oz, how's your day going? Good afternoon. It's going great. Thanks, Mike. How many times do you get up in the morning and just, just check in on what's happening on Mars? There seems to be an awful lot going on on Mars since the latest landing. Oh, yeah. I mean, some some huge early successes by the Perseverance rover. Um, yeah, oxygen, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute or two. And, of course, uh, last, week or, last week, although I lose track of time during COVID, um, you know, the first flight of the, the drone, which is just absolutely amazing. So, yeah, almost every day there's something new coming from the red planet. I think we all expected, or maybe some of us expected, that once the little drone, the little helicopter took off from Perseverance, we'd get all kinds of wild views. This would be like having a friend that owns a drone. Look, I flew it over here. Look at this video that I made. It hasn't quite been like that. Is it equipped to give us extended video at some point? Uh, I don't know. I don't think the drone itself is going to send back video, you know, as much as we'd (laughs) like it. Um, This, you know... It was such a huge, um, you know, technological achievement just to do this. And, you know, they they were very careful in framing it as a technology demonstration um, that could well fail. And so, you know, it's got uh, kind of a simple camera and things, um, but we've demonstrated it once. And so perhaps in the future uh, we might get, yeah. So we got to put video. some per- we have to put some perspective on that then. If you're on one planet and you're controlling something that is doing what you want it to do, taking off and landing on another planet, yeah, let's sit back and soak that in for a second. That can't be easy. 
Yeah, exactly, you know, and because it was all done autonomously, it's not like on Earth, you know, where we uh, you can sit there and watch your drone fly around or program a path. Uh, it's got to do this all on its own with that huge time delay, and that's the huge thing here as well. And, you know, that's also the major factor in why, you know, we'd love to have even video, you know, from... Uh, you know, perseverance and curiosity as they're driving around, but the the bandwidth, you know, the um, amount of time and the amount of data it takes to get that video back uh, is just huge. And so, you know, they prioritize getting you know the science data from the cameras and the other instruments uh, above video. Dr. Gordon Zinsky with us from Western University as we talk about what is going on on Mars. So along with the drone, we also hear that they're going to be turning or at least attempting, or I don't even know where this sits, CO2, carbon dioxide, into oxygen, O2. What is the story behind this and why is this necessary? For sure. And so this is actually another, um, you know, they're framing it as a technology demonstration. It's it's not for this mission. You know, this is not going to help us find samples and things and do geology and choose the samples that will eventually come back for perseverance. But this is laying the groundwork for humans going to Mars, which, you know, is, is huge and is hopefully going to happen in the next decade or so. And, of course, the key requirement for getting humans to Mars and back is the fuel that we need which contains oxygen, and then also, you know, oxygen to breathe. And so we, we simply cannot take all of the fuel, the oxygen, and the water that we need to Mars. And so if we can uh, generate and get some of those resources on the planet, then it's just going to reduce the costs and, uh, you know, reduce the risk as well of, uh, of sending humans to Mars. Wow. Okay. Plants, I think, have been doing this for a long time, but how difficult is it to turn CO2 into O2? So, you know, there's a couple of main ways they're thinking about it for Mars, because, of course, unlike Earth, there is, there's virtually no oxygen in the atmosphere. You know, there's a teeny, teeny trace of a few parts per million, but that's it. And so 96% of Mars's atmosphere is carbon dioxide. And so one approach, which is what this instrument took, is to take the carbon dioxide out and through essentially electrolysis, you know, which is a, a well-known, you know, chemical approach here, um, turn that carbon dioxide, essentially break it down, decompose it to produce oxygen. And then carbon monoxide is a, you know, a, a side product that they just uh, let escape into the atmosphere. And so, yeah, they've, uh, they did demonstrate it for the first time on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday this week, where they produced about five grams of oxygen which doesn't sound like much, but again, this is a very, think of this as a miniaturized version of what would eventually be sent to Mars and produced, you know, uh, kilograms and eventually metric tons of oxygen. Boy, wild to think of all of the little details. I mean, if we all picture going on that summer vacation with the family and piling into the classic station wagon and all the things you have to plan out, for the time that it takes to get there or once you get there. Uh, yeah, and then you do that to fly to Mars and hopefully have people be okay there. I can't even imagine how they come up with things. Would this be one of those things that they would just say, yeah, no, we, we've got to start focusing in on creating oxygen for fuel and, oh, breathing, so we we better get on that now? Absolutely, yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, the ideas and uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk have talked about this too, is, 
you know, I, the ideal scenario is that we take with us just enough everything, you know, and this is fuel, oxygen, water, etc., to get us to Mars, you know, a bit of a backup, and then uh, we can uh, get what we need from Mars. You know, we can grow plants, grow the food that we need, um, extract the water, you know, maybe from ice deposits where we could also potentially get oxygen too. Um, but anyway, the nice thing about um, extracting it from the atmosphere, unlike ice, which is only stable towards the poles, is that, you know, the atmosphere is everywhere. So we've demonstrated um, that we can do this. We need to scale it up, you know, uh, substantially. I think, we asked, you know, the, the numbers are something like it's going to be about seven metric tons of rocket fuel and 25 metric tons of oxygen to get the astronauts off the Martian surface and back to Earth safely. So... Not, not a small amount. Because that is the plan, right? This, this is sort of similar to moon missions in the past where you're putting humans on the moon and then they blast off and they come back to Earth, right? You're, you're not going there on a one-way trip. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no. We, we certainly hope so. Hope that they'll be uh, coming back and that's definitely the plan for the ages, agencies and things. And Yeah, you know, unlike the moon where, um, you know, we, well, we did it during Apollo, but even for the moon, you know, the plan, and we've talked about on the show in the past, is the excitement that there's potentially ice near the poles of the moon. And again, if we can use the resources, and, you know, the acronym for this experiment, MOXIE, is the Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. And so people may have heard about, you know, the idea of space mining and getting resources in space. And, you know, maybe a century from now, we'll be bringing back resources to Earth. But for now, we're really focusing on using resources in situ. And, you know, it's kind of a idea of living off the land, right? You know, you're, I do a lot of field work up in the Arctic. And, you know, 100 years ago, they were learning to do that and live off the land as we explore. And if we can do that, saves us taking as much uh, or too much with us. When, when you live off the land in a place like the Arctic, where you think you get up there and there's nothing around... How do you even begin to say, well, don't worry, there are things around there. There are resources. How do, how do you even do that? Well, yes, that's the problem, right? And th this is an extreme uh, on Mars. There is very little uh, readily available there. And so that's where technology comes in. And so, you know, we're going to take seeds that hopefully we can use Martian soil and, uh, and extract water so that we can grow plants so that, you know, we'll be taking some food with us. You know, you can't grow everything. Um, uh, but, you know, we, we know what the composition of the Martian atmosphere is. We know the composition of soils and rocks on the planets. And just like with the Arctic, you know, with that information in hand, we can design the life support systems and, uh, and these uh, technologies needed to extract those resources for us. Well... We really appreciate the time, Dr. Oz. Thank you for being able to put what sounds very difficult into language we can all understand. Enjoy the weekend, and please keep safe. You're very welcome, and uh, you too. That is Dr. Gordon Nazinski from Western University. On one of the experiments done this week, or at least one of the displays, I suppose, done this week, showing that you can take CO2 and turn it into O2, and that means fuel, and that means an ability to breathe, and so the plan keeps continuing forward to get some people up on Mars at some point in the future. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.